Today's reading comes from John 14, verses 1 through 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, good morning. I know some of you, some of you I do not know. If you don't know me, my name is Jake. Hi, Lindsay. Uh, I'm part of uh, the team in Christ City, East Vancouver. We planted four years ago, just before the pandemic, which is a great time to plant a church. Um, we planted there, uh, but previously I was on staff here. It is good to be with you this morning uh, to proclaim God's word to you. Uh, and so it's good to see so many familiar faces and so many new faces as well. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we are, we are desperate for you this morning. We are desperate for your word. Uh, we are parched people in a desert, uh, needing your word not just for interest or for fun. We need it to live. Otherwise, we'll die. So would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us hearts to receive and hands to take, feet to live out all that you call us to do? We love you, Jesus. We want to see you this morning. Would you be glorified in the proclamation of your word? Amen. Well, the last time I preached uh, John 14, it was at my wife's grandfather's funeral uh, in, in Calgary, Alberta. And admittedly, the tenor of the room was different then uh, than it is today. It's a bit more lively, obviously, uh, than it was uh, during the funeral. But, but I actually think that, that, that while the field is certainly different, I think some of the lingering questions of that day uh, are still found in this room today. I don't think it matters if you're at a funeral or at a celebratory Sunday morning gathering mere weeks before Christmas. We're all asking the same question. Is everything going to be okay? Is it going to be okay? Of course, death obviously brings that question to the fore as we contemplate our own mortality. But Advent, Christmas, likewise brings that question as we labor, sometimes to the point of near-death exhaustion, to provide these momentary reprieves of happiness and joy in an otherwise dark and growingly dim world. Is everything going to be okay? Is it going to be okay? The good news this morning is that at Advent, we don't just reflect on one, but on two Advents. Not just on one arrival, but on two arrivals. One that has already occurred. Indeed, you've heard this story involving a manger, wise men, a star, right? You know what I'm talking about. But one that we look forward to, an arrival that is to come. An arrival which will see Christ descend, not in humility, but in gloriously visible power and authority. As one theologian put it, at Advent, we preach not one Advent only of Christ, but a second also, far more glorious than the former. 
For the former gave a view of his patience, but the latter brings with it the crown of a divine kingdom. We rest, we rest, not upon his first advent only, but look also for his second. And as at his first coming, we said, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So will we repeat that same at his second coming, that when with the angels we meet our master, we may worship him and say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Friends, Advent emphatically answers the question, is everything going to be okay? By pointing us to not just backwards to the first arrival of Christ, but forwards to his second arrival as well. Is everything going to be okay? John 14, then what you heard read this morning, is our guide inviting us to grab hold of the future promise of Christ's second coming and to pull it into our present, to live in light of it today. And so really simply, three points. Here's how we're going to walk through the text. Commanded to trust, cultivating excitement, and carrying on. You with me? So I'm from East Vancouver, and in East Vancouver, people are very responsive, sometimes too responsive. Uh, and so just so you know, do with that what you will, but I just want to let you know. First point, commanded to trust. If you have your Bibles open, John 14 Verse 1, let's read that together. Just follow along in your Bibles with me. Jesus says to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. At this point in John's gospel, Jesus' disciples are essentially asking the same thing we're asking this morning. Is everything going to be okay? Is it going to be okay? We're encountering a group of Jesus followers huddled around a dimly lit table, feeling likely much the same way we are feeling, some of us are feeling today. Angry, confused, bitter, sad, disappointed. Why? Because Jesus has just told his disciples that he's going to be leaving. He, he's going away. Later in John, Jesus will say that his leaving will feel like, will be the experience like an orphaning. It will be like mom and dad dying. It will, it, will, it will feel like that. Just before this, in John 13, Jesus has predicted Peter's denial. And, and just before that, he said that Judas is going to betray him. And so however awkward your Christmas dinner is this year, this is a more awkward dinner still. Yes? There, there are traitors at the table. Jesus is leaving. What do we have to celebrate? What do we have going for us? And so in the midst of this awkward Christmas dinner, Jesus, he's saying these things to his disciples, ever the good shepherd, he senses the need for a pastoral moment, right? I think it's so instructive to us that in this tender and frail space, Jesus does not, as I am so tempted often to do as a parent, uh, just minimize the difficulty and the sadness of that moment. Nor does he sort of, you know, unthinkingly join in on the despairing mood in the room. Instead, Jesus says, John 14, verse 1, hold on to me. Hold on to me. John 14, 1 says to them and to us through the ages, literally with the force of a command, stop letting your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me, Jesus says. 
As we consider the second advent of Christ this morning, here's what I want us to see. It's, it's, it's really simple. Eager anticipation for the future return of Jesus begins, is sustained by a, a present love for Jesus, a present holding and trusting and delighting in Jesus. We, we will never eagerly anticipate Jesus' kingdom if we do not have a loving relationship now with the King. And so if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, Advent is a season of doubling down on Jesus. Of doubling down on Jesus. For plunging headlong into deeper, more vast, more intimate, more joy-filled, more wondrous relationship than you could have ever imagined. It's about repenting for thinking that you've intellectually and emotionally mastered the incarnation. You've mastered, right, the gloriousness of his second advent. And about finding yourself encountering the newness and the beauty soaring deeper into this timeless gospel that we proclaim. It's a time of just delighting in Jesus, just being with Jesus. And if you're new this morning, first off, welcome. It's a time for receiving Jesus for the first time. It's a time for believing in Jesus for the first time. It's important that we begin here, and it's important perhaps most supremely because at the return of Jesus, just like at his first arrival, the great gift we receive is Jesus himself. So let me just ask you a question. What are you most excited about in Jesus' kingdom? Like, what are you most excited about? What thrills your heart? When Jesus comes, he gives us a new body, a new physical body. When he remakes, renews this earth. Like, what are you most excited about? Have you thought about that before? For some of us, it's being reunited with our spouse. Right? Being with our kids, right? Finally, in heaven, we'll have a happy Christmas dinner, maybe. For others of us, it's an eternity of pursuing pleasures you could not afford in this world. I was at a Christmas party last night. I was talking to a woman who is lactose intolerant. And she was saying, in heaven, I'm going to eat cheese for hundreds of years. <laughs> I said, bless you, sister. Maybe it's just sitting around with some of the world's greatest thinkers and just hearing them talk. Admittedly, all of those things are very appealing to me. And because they are so appealing to me, I can begin to think that Jesus' kingdom is about enjoying his gifts rather than the giver of the gifts. But, but look at John 14, verse 3 with me. Look back at your Bibles. Jesus says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Listen, that where I am, you may be also. The audacious presupposition that Jesus brings to the disciples' pain, that Jesus brings to our pain, is that his presence as good as all those other things are, his presence, being with him, is the cure for what ails them. It is, is the satisfaction of their deepest longing. Jesus says, what do you get forever? Me. Me. You get me, Jesus says. 
Being in a heavenly house, which by the way is the language of absolute intimacy. Being in this heavenly house where I am, you get me, Jesus says. John Piper, the theologian, the pastor, he puts it to us really well when he writes this. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked, cheese, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflicts or natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? It's one of those penetrating questions, isn't it? Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? If you're new this morning, again, welcome. Perhaps you've come because you feel life is purposeless and aimless, and you're hoping that Jesus, ever the wise sage, will dispense to you some of his ancient, well-founded wisdom. Or maybe you come, you've come because someone you know is sick, like, like, like really sick, and you're hoping that Jesus, this wonder worker back then, is the same wonder worker today. Or, or maybe you've come because your favorite podcast has told you that religious institutions are important. And, and in view of the, the cultural and societal decay, we have to go back to our historical foundations. However you've come this morning, whatever road has brought you into this place, let me just say this. While Jesus' wisdom is unparalleled, he has all of it. And while Jesus can heal, even today, we believe that. And while Jesus and his good commands are the foundation of a flourishing world and society, all those gifts pale in comparison with knowing Jesus. All they do is point to the giver. They pale in comparison with knowing him, with surrendering to him and being and sitting without shame or guilt in his presence. And can I invite you, if you don't know Jesus, to trust in Jesus this morning, to believe in Jesus this morning, to hear his command. Stop letting your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, Jesus says. Believe also in me. There will be people at the cross following the gathering who would love to pray with you and for you. If they have a lanyard on, you've heard John say it, they want to pray with you. They want to encourage you. But if I can for a moment speak to those who are followers of Jesus here in this room, I think there is a unique temptation to us today. For those of us who love Jesus, it is not and it should not be surprising to see our world in chaos and disorder as it moves away from the moral foundations, the moral soil of the Judeo-Christian tradition. That shouldn't surprise us. As a result then, we are eager, quite eager to celebrate those who acknowledge all that the Christian heritage has, has given to us, has given to our world. I was reading a blog post a few weeks ago by a woman who was a Muslim and then an atheist and now a Christian, and it was titled, Why I Am Now a Christian. And as I read it, it went on to read as a defense for, for the West, essentially, and, and Western thinking. And, and not once did it mention Jesus. And now, I want to be just really, really careful here. Like, none of us is saved with perfect theology. 
right? Been following Jesus 10 plus years. My theology, far from perfect. None of us is saved with perfect theology. Nonetheless, I wonder if in our rush to embrace these Christian-adjacent thinkers, we must never forget that we, or that what saves at Jesus' return, is not love of his gifts, but love of himself. What what saves at Jesus' return is not an appreciation for Western culture, or Western thinking, or Western society, but a deep love for Jesus, a deep abiding relationship with Christ. Have we been so enamored with his gifts this morning that we've lost sight of him? Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Hold on to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. And as we do that, we find, this is point two, we grow in excitement for the kingdom his second advent brings. Look at this. Cultivating excitement. Point two, verse two, it works. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? We'll stop there. Our tendency to love the gifts more than the giver is not ill-founded. While we must labor to ensure our hearts are fully set on Jesus, it would be a mistake this morning to think that Jesus' kingdom is some sort of disembodied spiritual reality. When I was a kid, I thought heaven was like an eternal staring contest with Jesus. I would just be with him, and it would be awkward, and I would lose just for eternity. I would just be losing again and again. As some of you were raised to think that heaven was like an eternal worship service, and this is great, but you're like, I want to do some things too. <laughs> right? That, that, that's not eternity. Jesus speaks of, of, of a spatial place, a physical place, a renewed heavens and, and, and new earth. And while the language of house and home is undoubtedly meant to convey intimacy, it's also meant to stir in our imaginations and convey to us both the expansiveness and the unknown wonders that will greet us at Jesus' second advent. In other words, John 14 is meant to cultivate excitement in us and wonder in us. So consider two things with me. First, the home that Jesus will bring has rooms for many people. Now, now we're not preaching through John's gospel, and so this language of many means maybe nothing to you. But if you've been reading up until this point in John's gospel, there's been like a wave building. And this repetition of many has been coming up time and time and time again. And so, for example, in John 4, Jesus is preaching to the Samaritans. And in John 4, verse 41, John says, And many more believed because of his word. The the wave is building. And then in John 8, again, Jesus is preaching. And John says, As he was saying these things, many believed in him. You You can see the momentum building here, yes? Then in John 10, Jesus went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. That's John the Baptist. And there Jesus remained. Listen, and many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. Listen, and many believed in him there. Many people, a lot of people are believing in Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I've got rooms for you. I've got rooms for all of you. See, many in John's gospel can refer, yes, to a lot of people, 
but also, if, if we read closely, we see it refers to a lot of different kinds of people, a real diverse group of people. In John's gospel alone, we see that the many who believe in Jesus include the rich and the poor, the white collar and, and the blue collar, those who grew up with stories of the Bible steeped in Torah, and, and those who have, have no association, no affiliation with this Jesus movement, with, with this Messiah. We see it includes those who are ostracized in society and those who are esteemed, those who are slow to believe and those for whom belief seemingly comes easily and, and naturally. And here's what this means. All of this means that today there is something of heaven for us to experience now as we intentionally move towards other believers who are not like us, who are different than us. So I'll let you in uh, to the Christ City East Vancouver story. When you plant a church, no one says this, here's the secret. When you plant a church, you have in your mind the person who will come to your church. And inevitably, they kind of look like you. They kind of have the same like hobbies that you do, have the same aspirations that you have, same sort of socioeconomic level. And, and you plant the church. You don't say this explicitly, and nor do you necessarily want this, but that's just kind of what you're thinking. So we planted in 2019, like I said, right before a pandemic. Again, great time to plant a church. We, we, we planted in 2019, and we soon found that the Lord had other plans for us as a church. That, that due to a confluence of a number of things, uh, one of them being proximate to the downtown east side, the other one having a church full of people who worked in the missions and services serving on the downtown east side, and, and a number of other things, our church has over time slowly but surely become quite socioeconomically diverse. And I'll tell you this, Christ City, the, the greatest gift, the greatest gift God has given to Christ City East Vancouver, to me and to my family, is to have brothers and sisters in Christ with vastly different backgrounds than I do, with vastly different socioeconomic experiences than I do, to be in this slowly learning, still very imperfect family, figuring out together what it means to follow Jesus. It's been one of the greatest gifts of these last four years. And so one of the great things about being an itinerant preacher or coming and preaching somewhere and then leaving is I can say hard things and leave. So Ready? If, if you're a young family this morning, you've got young kids, don't just look for other young families. Don't just come into a church and say, hey, where are people like me? Right? I get it. They're also sleep deprived, right? We can commiserate together. We can share tips. Maybe I can borrow a diaper from them. But don't just look for young families. You're robbing yourself of an experience, of a heavenly experience. If you're single, and maybe you come to church looking for a spouse. First off, good on you. Church is a great place to find a spouse. But, but don't just look for other singles. Find families and insert yourself into their life. Insert yourself. Yeah, that's what I meant. If you're old, you have gray hair. We were just at a men's retreat a few weeks ago. And let me just tell you this, one of the resounding outcomes of that retreat that I heard at least was that young men in our church are desperate for older men to disciple them, are desperate for older men to speak into their life, 
are desperate for father figures to put their arm around them and say, here's the ways you should walk in. We're desperate. When we do that, when we find ourselves with people who are not like us, we are picturing for our world a little piece of heaven now. And we are enjoying for ourselves the very kingdom of God. Do you see that? Seek out people who are not like you. Isn't that exciting? Second thing, that the many rooms of John 14 speaks not just to the many people or the many different kinds of people who will be in Jesus' kingdom, but to the kingdom's inherent expansiveness. It speaks the truth that in his kingdom, we will open door after door after door to wonder, each door leading us deeper and deeper into dimensions of truth and life. While heaven must first be about the giver before the gifts, it is nonetheless a place of unending gifts and blessing. A place, Jesus says, even of rewards. See, what most in this city will experience at Christmas will be an insatiable desire for stuff. Here's the cycle. Insatiable desire for stuff, followed by realizing that stuff on Sunday morning, followed by tremendous disappointment and eventual boredom, and then insatiable desire for stuff. And if you have kids, you see it happen in like 30 minutes. Just a cycle. Until the next present, it goes again, again, and again. And as adults, we have to be honest. I mean, we, we experience that as well, don't we? Maybe it's a bit longer, our cycle, but nonetheless, insatiable desire for something, getting the thing, bored with the thing, insatiable desire for something. We do that all the time. The many-room promise of Jesus invites us to long for a world of never-ending discovery, of never-ending enjoyment. Jesus is saying that just as we can find no bottom in God, always discovering new and delighting things about him, so too will God's home, being God's home, never be a place that ceases to amaze us. Isn't that exciting? Nevertheless, the reality this morning is that Jesus' disciples had to leave this room. They had to walk out of this dimly lit room and, and, and go back to their nine to five, begin fishing again, doing whatever they were doing before they met Jesus. And so too do we this morning need to lead, live our lives. So too do we need to leave this room. So this is our third and final point, carrying on. As we wait for the return of Christ, how do we carry on? How do we do that? Let's look back at our text. Jesus has commanded his disciples, both past and present, to trust in him. He's spoken about his spacious yet intimate eternal abode that he goes to prepare. He's even said, as if it should be obvious, verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. And then Thomas pipes up. And I love Thomas. Thomas is the guy in the crowd who, when the pastor is preaching, and everybody's like nodding their heads like they understand, and when they're wildly confused, like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Thomas is like, I don't get it. <laughs> like, I don't see what you're talking about, Jesus. You're talking cryptically and sort of strangely. I don't get it. And so Thomas interjects in verse 5 for all of our benefits. Thomas said to him, to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. You didn't tell us. You didn't tell us. How can we know the way? 
And I'm so glad Thomas asked this question because the question that Thomas is essentially asking is this. What's beyond death? What's beyond death? How do we get there? And Jesus responds, I am the way and the truth and the life. Hear this, Christ City. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's this almost paradoxical thing happening here where Jesus says that he is both the destination, like you'll be with me forever, but also he's the way. He's both the destination and, and the way. Now, how can that be? I think perhaps the answer comes to us more clearly as we go later in John. So turn in your Bibles with me to John 14, verse 23. Again, the conversation continues. Jesus is still pastoring his disciples. And he said, in verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. Listen. And we will come to him and make our home with him. And look at verse 27. It won't be on the screen, but look in your Bibles. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Listen again. Let not your hearts be troubled. He says it again. Neither let them be afraid. Again, Jesus uses the language of home. Again, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. It's not an accident. Jesus began this chapter with a command to trust in him and mention of an eternal home with him. Jesus once more commands us to trust in him, and he says something about having home with us today, right now. And here's what I think Jesus wants us to see. The many who heed Jesus' words to believe in God, believe also in me, will carry on will go forward, will leave that room, not under their own strength and willpower, not by their might, not on roads littered with the weak who could not make it up the mountain, but we will carry on, indeed be carried by Jesus' very presence in the person, in the gift of his spirit. We do not need to wait for the second advent to own a home with Jesus to be at home with Jesus. If we accept Jesus today, he takes up residence with us now. And Christ City, the promise is that he'll carry you through, I promise you will, whatever life throws at you, even death itself. At Christmas, friends, we're reminded not only that the word once became flesh and dwelled among us, not only that the same word will reign forever, at his second advent over a new heavens and new earth, but also that the word who became flesh and dwelt among us still dwells among us today, is present in this room, think about that, is present in this room even now by his Holy Spirit, is speaking to you now, is drawing your heart to him now by his Holy Spirit, is keeping his church now by his Holy Spirit. He has not left us. We have not been orphaned. And for those who trust, for those who trust, he is carrying us deeper and deeper and deeper into his life, even in the face of death, even in the face of discouragement. Friends, for those who look to Jesus, everything is going to be okay. 
Everything's going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. I invite you to bow your heads as I pray for you. I want to end this morning by reading this prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. Let me pray this over you. May the Lord make you glad during this remembrance of the birth of his only son, Jesus Christ. That as you joyfully receive him for your Redeemer, you may with sure confidence behold him when he shall come to be our judge. Amen. Would you stand as we respond this morning? <laughs>